Welcome to Social Work Stories, a podcast exploring social work practice through stories and critical reflection. This podcast is recorded on Aboriginal country, lands which were never ceded. We acknowledge the traditional custodians and cultural knowledge holders of these lands and pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present, and emerging. We offer a warm welcome to any Indigenous listeners who are part of our podcast community around the world. If you have thoughts or feedback for our team, or just want to find our whole back catalog of episodes, check out our website, socialworkstories.com. But for now, on with the episode. We're back, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox, and I'm here with Liz Murphy. We're back again. Happy 2022. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I think I'm feeling rusty. It's been a while since I've been behind the mic. I I know. Apologies. Starting with an apology. Well, it's a good place to start, Liz. I mean, we've had a a bit of a break and we want to apologise to everyone for that. But it is because this summer was actually bizarre, Liz, right? Mm. Like, it was surprise COVID uh, summer. We were promised a summer that was a real summer. And instead we got, uh, some of us in the team got absolutely knocked for six when it came to COVID isolations. And when I say some of us, I mean myself and Justin. And then some of us <laughs> just had a normal COVID summer, right? Uh, look, I feel like I've got survival guilt. It hasn't hit me. And I know, I know, I possibly have just unleashed it's something on myself. I live opposite a uh, PCR testing place. Yeah. And I've seen lines of cars earlier in the year. Um, I've had many, many family members who went down with COVID. Of course, you, Mim, and yeah. Justin, and friends. And I, I feel like I'm a bit sheepish. I know. You should feel deeply guilty, Liz. I feel uh, deeply as... grateful at this stage. <laughs> guilty and grateful. That's fine too. Look, um, it's so good to be back though after the mm. summer that was. That being said, we now have floods that have hit our country and so we've kind of gone from disaster to disaster to the next disaster, it feels like. Yeah, and I, I know I've got some social work friends and colleagues who are on the north coast of New South Wales and I'm sending them much heartfelt, um, you know, care and concern for them it's it's tough at the moment for our our coastal dwelling social work friends and colleagues absolutely let alone the people that they're working with still throughout the flood time so um, sending our best out to everyone but kind of glad as well to be at the beginning of a new year I have to say I think we've got a number of really exciting things planned for this year so I think it's it's going to be a good a good year to kick off Liz, this episode that we're going to start our 2022 off with, it's it's an exciting conversation and I know this came from you. So I wanted you to introduce it to our listeners. Well, I'll start with a quirky story. So as you know, our number one fans are my parents. And toward the end of last year, my dad sent me an editorial or letters to the editor, I should say, And one of them was from a social worker basically talking about that social workers are doing a lot of the heavy lifting in relation to COVID response. 
and it was this fantastic letter that I read and then I had to do some investigative work and I started stalking this Dr. Josie that we were that, that uh, we're going to um, share the interview with um, and who is this delightful social worker who's working both in private practice but she's got years and years and years of experience and she was so happy to um, be interviewed by us and share some of her practice wisdom. Uh, so her, her name is Dr. Josie McSkimming and she does a lovely introduction of herself, Mim. So I think what we could do is launch straight into it because what she's going to do is have a conversation, well, she has a conversation with us about what it's been like in private practice and what have been some of the issues that her clients have come to her with, what it's been like to go virtual, because at the time we were speaking to her, we were in full lockdown, um, how it's shifted her practice, what have been some of the practical tips that, that she's been able to share with us. And interestingly, what have been the COVID specific losses and issues that people have been wanting to talk with her about? Um, I, I found her really interesting, but also quite candid in the way in which she, she shares some of her thoughts with us. Yeah, I think that's really true, Liz. And um, I think this is a particularly good episode for those social work students who have come in to study social work thinking that they want to go straight into private practice because Josie has some really good tips around why taking your time, getting some skills and experience behind you is actually a really good idea before launching out on your own. So um, listen up if you're one of those uh, fabulous students out there, but also if you're a practitioner thinking about doing private practice and tra making that transition at some point, I think this is a really good resource for all of you as well. So enjoy the episode. My name's Josie McSkimming. I have been a social worker for a very, very long time. Dare I say 40 years. I've said it, it's out there. Um, and not all in private practice, obviously. I've been a hospital social worker. I've worked for the Department of Community Services. Um, I've worked for um, NGOs, you know, all, all manner of um, organisations, uh, but more recently, well, when I say more recently, since 2000, it's not that recent, I have been in private practice and I also teach and I also do a lot of supervision. It's exciting to have you talk about your private practice because I don't, I think we've probably had one other social worker that we've spoken to who's told us a little bit about their private practice. But um, this is really exciting because I know that's an emerging field for social workers in Australia. Yes. Um, and yeah, so, what, so tell us a little bit about what it's like to work in private practice. Well, Look, I, I went into private practice after I was working in um, drug and alcohol treatment centre. And I think I went into private practice really to have more control over my work. Um, you know, I found it very difficult to always be told, you know, what needed to happen. I was getting really tired of some of the sort of bureaucratic requirements. So that gave me the opportunity to... Um, you know, find my way therapeutically. And, you know, this was before we had any subsidies or rebates for Medicare. 
This is when you were on a level playing field with everybody else. Psychotherapists, masters of counselling, psychologists. And to be honest with you, I prefer that. I think that some of the accreditation of mental health social workers, while it's um, the aim is to uh, increase social works, I think, credibility and visibility in the space of mental health, I think that what it's meant is that social work, as um, we have practised um, our counselling, our therapeutic work in private practice, has become just a little bit too medical. And I think that that has been a danger. Social work has always offered something different. In private practice and in agencies, we've always offered something different. We've always had um, a primary focus of social justice, human rights, equity, diversity. And hopefully we've championed and um, validated those in our work. But you know, because of requirements of Medicare, because of competition with psychologists, it does concern me the, that social workers in private practice inevitably, and they don't always enjoy it, find themselves speaking more about um, mental health as kind of intra-psychic dilemmas or uh, diagnoses or you know, using medical models. And while, of course, social workers aren't anti-medication and there aren't bound anti-diagnosis, we're certainly anti-stigma. And I feel concerned that social workers in private practice, despite not a lot of encouragement to do so, really do need to keep that flag flying around the social creation or at least the exacerbation of mental health issues because of social inequity, injustice, um, exclusion from service, marginalisation of um, minorities. You know, this, this is who we are. Um, you know, we don't just diagnose and treat people. And I certainly don't want to see social work going that way because then we're just aping psychologists and probably not as well as them anyway. So let's not do it. So th that's my kind of take on private practice. Josie, can I ask what sort of um, clients that you're seeing the most of in your practice and whether the pandemic has actually changed that at all for you? Yeah, well, I had lots of people um, who I hadn't seen for a long time came back to me during the pandemic. It's the nature of private practice. You know, once a client, always a client, you do a piece of work and then people often come and go. Um, I, I have to say the, the people who I've seen less of are couples. I have historically done a lot of um, couple work and that just does not work well. I have found through telehealth, through Zoom, Skype, you know, couples with difficulties kind of squashed up together on a couch in front of an iPad with their children all around them and distractions. They don't find it helpful. It's just really not an easy way to do couple work. So that's got less, much less. And now we're starting to open up. I'm starting to see the couples coming back, which is, is good. 
Um, otherwise, my practice tends to be more people who have um, uh, anxiety, depression, diagnosed, if you like, anxiety, depression, um, substance uses. I mean, these are the things that I specialise in, so people come to me. Uh, alcohol and other drugs, eating problems. Um, um, but during the pandemic, you know, I haven't wanted to medicalise too many of the mental health challenges involved for reasons I've said before, because um, the loneliness or the sadness or the challenges that people have been experienced, experiencing aren't diagnosed mental illnesses you know, in my assessment. They're often very reactive and contextual to the circumstances that they found themselves in. And while, of course, there may be a vulnerability or a tenderness in somebody in regards to their mental health, this context has just made it, um, you know, absolutely dreadful for lots of people. So the isolation in particular has been a real issue Josie, what about what about people um, losing employment, um, having you know relationships falter because they're in the confines of their place? Yes, and- all of that, all of that, and you're dealing with this. Well, I'm dealing with this, you know, via a screen, and relationships are often under enormous strain, uh, and people are drinking and eating more. Um, I tend to find that in private practice, the kind of the ways that people cope with the exploding anxiety or the depression or even the difficult situation at home, because there is an element, even though we I do bulk bill, of some payment required that the um, alcohol and other drugs issue becomes more focused on those drugs that somehow allow people to reasonably function so that they're still able to pay something, if that makes sense. So I tend not to see people who are absolutely homeless, chaotic, um, with, uh, you know, addictions that have rendered them, you know, unable to access a computer, you know, those, those sorts of things. So um, yes, yeah, so the loneliness has been a huge thing for people. For people who live alone, before there were um, ways that people could connect with one other person, it was just hugely. And, you know, that's been a big challenge, I think, for those of us who've been doing a lot of work online, is that people are really distressed on the other side of a computer screen. And when we work with people in the room, there is a kind of a real subtle way that I self-regulate and I also help the clients to self-regulate when they're highly distressed like that. And through a screen, it is a completely different and very inadequate way of dealing with the strong emotion. Um, So, you know, I said to somebody, I said to um, a woman yesterday in preparing for this podcast, in fact, what's the difference between now you've seen me face-to-face, this is after six months of not seeing me and being online, Uh, and she said, well, of course, the the telehealth is better than nothing and it's a lifeline and it's, you know, it's a kind of a window into the home and a real connection. 
But she said just looking at you through a screen wasn't the same when her emotion was really welling up. You know, just that kind of being in the room was so entirely different. Uh, And she said she couldn't concentrate either nearly as well, which uh, I think is very interesting because when you're seeing people via Zoom or Skype, there are so many distractions, particularly during the pandemic, because in the case of people with busy households, uh, there's so many people there. And women have got children running into the room and, uh, you know, it's very hard for them. So they go out and they sit in their car on their phones, (laughs) trying to have a session, shouting at the kids, get back in the house. (laughs) It's really, you know, kind of funny. Um, And so the kids going, oh, no, can't get it, can't get the computer to work. You know, there's all of that. So it's a entirely different therapeutic way of working, yeah. So you can, um, sorry, Mim, I just, I just wanted to ask, for those clients that had a relationship with you prior to the COVID, yes. I guess there was, there was that history that you could build on, that they mm. knew that this is something that, you know, I know what it's like to be in a room with you. In some regards, this is a supplementary to what we've already built. Um, but for, for new clients, that must have been really hard to kind of try and find the, the connection, the, the rapport building in such an, in, in, in a sense, an artificial um, way. I found that very difficult. And in fact, I have been very careful who I've taken on as a new client. And, you know, this is the thing about being in private practice. You actually do have the discretion and the choice to either take somebody on or not. And, uh, and I didn't take on people that I kind of thought this was going to be incredibly difficult because uh, when you actually meet somebody for the first time via the screen and they're coming with trauma, I should have said that before, I see a lot of people with trauma histories, you have to spend quite a lot of time doing the setup of the counselling frame about what's going to happen what we do, what kind, what's the sort of counselling they're expecting, you know, are they private, is there anybody around, is there anybody who's likely to walk in, do they need to say anything, do they need to ask questions, you know, it's, and you know, and then of course you have the normal technical problems when people are telling you things that are very private, freezing, um, the computers break down, the Wi-Fi connections are always failing. Oh, it's just terrible. Josie, it sounds so difficult, actually. It sounds like there's so much going on in that online space. And I guess I'm thinking about all of our listeners who either are out there considering going into private practice or are students who think that this might one day be something that they want to do. Are there any strategies that you've found through this time that actually have helped weather some of these difficult moments well particularly what working online yeah um well my own personal strategies have been not to see too many people in a day if you want to be really specific because it's actually more tiring than being with somebody in a room which can be actually quite energizing and innovating when you're actually working with somebody in the room um i i don't find that I can be absolutely spent 
Whereas when you're working online, you're really trying hard to maintain your eye contact. People are looking everywhere. You know, if you don't, you know, the camera is all over the place on people's different devices. So nobody's really looking into each other's eyes. So you're spending a lot of time trying to look and be engaged. And there are a lot of distractions for them. Um, and, you know, sometimes for me, with emails and messages coming through, you've got to kind of turn those off or, or ignore those. So I just would have thought certainly in the middle of a pandemic is not the time to start your private practice. <laughs> you know, we're hard enough with existing clients, let alone new ones. And to go into private practice does require, it seems to me, quite a lot of thought about how you uh, manage yourself and your own kind of, you know, emotional ebbs and flows in your life. Because, you know, there isn't opportunities just to go into another room and debrief. They, they just don't exist. And even if you have formal structures where you meet together for peer supervision or peer support, they are scheduled. So if you actually want to just have a casual, that was a really difficult conversation I've just had, that then private practice is probably not the place you need to be, or at least not yet in your career. Because you've got a lot to do all that, yeah, that kind of self-regulation and talking yourself through things and noticing your own triggering and resonances and why things are getting to you. You've kind of got to be able to ask yourself a lot of questions. What am I doing and why am I doing it? I think practitioners should be asking themselves those questions anyway. But you really don't have somebody to bounce those questions off in a spontaneous way. You've got to wait for the client to finish and then think, what am I doing or what was I doing and why was I doing it? And why did I ask those questions and what effect did they have? Josie, I, I'm speaking from a personal space now, but I've found that COVID has also forced my hand to kind of review my life and big decisions around my work and um, what I want to do with time. And it's made me wonder about whether your clients have come to you with existential questions that COVID has kind of hothoused them around. I think that's a very good question. And I'd say it's absolutely true. But sometimes it hasn't been helped by various kind of um, media suggestions and invitations around what people should be doing with their lives. Because often there's that sense of you should be doing something more worthy or more interesting. And maybe you could be learning Italian or maybe you could be making rugs for people in need. Whereas I found that a lot of the people that I see, this is, this, these exact words have been said to me so many times, I'm barely holding it together. And so if there are these kinds of invitations culturally about what you should be doing, inevitably people get into those habits of over-comparison and, you know, self-blame and I've found, been found wanting. So if anything, I think the pandemic has allowed, you know, uh, people to certainly 
I've wanted to help people discover, you know, what we often promote, and that is it's okay not to be okay. And in fact, the idea that there are all these people who are self in reinventing themselves and establishing brilliant new careers while they're in lockdown is actually potentially an unhelpful way to be thinking. It's okay to be barely holding it together. Because my experience is that's what it's been like for most people. Those people who are unemployed or underemployed and those people who are working harder than ever. So in some ways, um, it's a bit of a luxury to reinvent because a lot of people, they're barely holding it together. Um, so I'm, my, I'm noticing now as we're starting to open up, once I'm seeing people face-to-face, -face, they're starting to ask those questions about, do I want to do this anymore? Maybe some of the pressure, you know, it's like a pressure valve has been released. You know, it's, it's been life-changing for people. But sometimes just life-changing in that they've been reminded of, um, you know, perhaps their own capacities, their own um, skills and knowledges, their own resources. That's life-changing. Sure. And, and have you noticed that some there's been some different losses that people are now talking to you about as a result of, of COVID? We're certainly seeing this in the hospital. That's been the theme all the way through. And what I found really interesting is that as each week went through with the pandemic, it was almost like an accretion of losses. There was just one loss on top of another loss on top of another loss. Now, I wasn't necessarily dealing with people who um, had COVID or had relatives or friends who had become very sick or died from COVID because um, a lot of that was happening in the hospital. But these just accretion of losses of people they couldn't see, places they couldn't go. And it was like each week, it seemed to me as I talked to people, had a theme. There was some theme where everybody hit the wall together and thought they couldn't go on. Then there was the week where everybody just seemed to be talking about grief and loss. And the irony in all of this, of course, is that it paralleled my own journey because we were all going through it. And so it's one of those rare times in social work where we're all in this together. And so they wanted to know how I was too. How's my family? Am I all right? Isn't that, you know, isn't it lucky you got your holiday? You know, so it was, um, it was sort of lovely in that sense of that we were all connecting around the fact that we were all experiencing loss, couldn't see people, had suffered an accretion, this terrible layering of losses. But I did... I did find it quite extraordinary how each week people would talk about very similar things and each week it would be a little bit different. It wasn't as though they were all talking to each other either. <laughs> Forget about group therapy in COVID, that's for sure. <laughs> no, there was no group therapy. But isn't that what they say, that the pandemic has been this amazing leveller in terms of that emotional response, right? And, and it makes sense that you're seeing that in private practice. Oh, yes, and... I think 
look, I thought it was lovely the way I could see. This was the good part. I could see into people's homes and see their cats and see their dogs and see everything that was going on. And um, I often would say to people, don't have your fake background. Let It's okay. You know, let, let's just talk about where you are and where you're up to. And they could see me too. And I would have different things in the background that we could talk about. And they would always ask me how I was because it was a great leveller. Yeah. yeah. You know, and in private practice, people get to know things about you. And so they want to ask you how you're going with such and such, you know. A lot of my clients know that I like to get out into the bush and they said, oh, you can't go to the bush. So it was, um, I, I thought that that was a connection that was a little unexpected, the way we all were in a parallel process and all were talking about it. it that's going to be really interesting to reflect on a little bit further down the line, I, I, I would imagine, Josie, just what it did to the level of intimacy with you and your clients. Um, and and I, I'm really curious about moving out of this pandemic. Is there anything from what you were having to do in the, in the middle of the pandemic and the lockdown that you think you will continue to maybe well, use in your practice? Well, there are certainly people who want to stick with the telehealth. And now that is a Medicare permanent provision because I have a lot of people that travel right across the city to see me. And if I know them well, they're quite happy to not travel or maybe just every so often come for a face-to-face, -face. particularly people I've known for a long time who I might just see monthly sort of for monitoring and maintenance. It's absolutely a godsend to them not to travel. Plus, there's the clients that I have in other capital cities and around the world. So this, in some ways, this has absolutely expanded my practice and uh, to the extent that it's been too busy. That's what I mean about, um, and because nobody cancels anymore. So I found this another curious thing. Nobody can go on holidays and nobody, and if they're sick, you still see them. So nobody cancels, <laughs> whereas it used to be somebody go on holidays or their kids were sick, they couldn't come for their session. Now, if you've got those sessions booked in, chances are they will all be there because they're sitting at home and they really want to see you. So that was a, a, a curious thing. But I'll certainly keep doing the telehealth. But a hybrid model, by the sounds of things, still have face-to-face -face, but also offer the telehealth. I was already doing that with um, supervisees who were in other places because it's very convenient. But now, you see, it's never been offered by Medicare before. So if people were sick or couldn't come to their session, um, well, you just wouldn't have it. But this way, if they can't get to their session for any particular reason, be it their kind of mental health concerns, too much anxiety, or even if they're sick. So as I say, you're, you're, I mean, I'm busier than ever and my other colleagues are the same. We're busier than ever. It's a strange intimacy. It's like a home visit when you are seeing people online, but it's a different intimacy when they're with you. The The intellectual and emotional depth of the conversation is much better face-to-face. -face. It's just 
there's less distractions and the room uh, provides that containment for those com conversations where I just find um, online, and a lot of people have said this to me, supervisees and colleagues, it just feels not always, but sometimes just a little shallow. It doesn't always have the quality of the face-to-face -face work. Maybe that's to do with our own concentration. We're distracted, they're distracted, or is it the medium? I mean, it's probably a bit of both or all three, yeah. It also just sounds like it's really important that you're setting clear boundaries around this, both for yourself and for the other person. Yes. Well, I mean, this is the whole thing about private practice is that you have to learn how to do this because there's nobody going to do it for you. And you learn the hard way just about always where you see too many people or you see people who are from the same family and they end up talking about each other. It's another different kind of boundary conflict of interest problem. When you're in private practice, you kind of learn all these things the hard way when you think that is actually a poor practice decision and I must not do that. Hopefully with very good supervision, mind you, but you do need good supervision when you're in private practice because you do tend to make mistakes because you're worried that you might not get enough work. You say yes to things you probably shouldn't say yes to. And this isn't the stuff that you learn as, you know, an undergraduate or even as a postgraduate. No, not, it, it's, not it, at all. You learn it not when you're doing it. But you learn so. it when you're doing it. And people should not have any kind of idea that private practice is the pinnacle of social work or, you know, halcyon days come my way when we do private practice. It is really hard. And if you, the flexibility is good, but the counterpoint to flexibility is that you really do have to show up. You, it's a real commitment when you're in private practice. And so you, you can't just um, refer people kind of think, well, I'm going away and so there's somebody else to see them or I'm leaving the agency and so somebody else will pick up the slack. You're there. And unless you take a huge slab of time off or retire, you're there. So you have to keep showing up. So that's why I often talk to people about be careful who you say yes to because some of this work goes on for a long time. Josie, we've, we're just getting ready to wind up now, if that's okay. But I, I guess I'm curious to know, are you taking a break yourself? You know, when we kind of reach that magical December date, have you got plans to have, a, have a break? I so am. Good. I so am. And the second I can drive, I'm in Sydney, the second I can drive, um, I'm actually driving out of Sydney and, you know, out west so that I can kind of go and look at birds and, birds and be in wilderness. Uh, ironically, I tend to try and go on holidays where there's no phone signal. <laughs> Very good. I like no phone signal. So, yes, I've got much better over the years. I mean, when you're a social worker, as I have been for a long time, a lot of people don't last the distance. I love the profession and I never regret doing it. But you really do have to understand your limitations. We, have, we know so many colleagues who have been burnt out at various times and I've certainly been burnt out, burnt down. You have to have a degree of literacy about yourself and I know what I need to do. I need to take breaks. So I don't just push on through 
maybe when I was 30, but certainly not now. 30 sounds so old to a lot of our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I went into private practice when I was 40 and I thought, oh, I'm too young. I'm too young for private practice. I don't have enough life experience. And my colleague said, well, I'm 40, I'm 38, I'm 45. Yeah, you can go into private practice at 40. But I did feel that private practice, you really do need to be able to relate to a whole range of different people. And you need to have a certain robustness because you don't know what you're going to get. You know, there's family violence. There's serious um, mental health challenges. There's lots of challenges and you're with someone and it's not as though you can just kind of call somebody to come and give you a hand. You've got to have the skills. But lots of social workers do. I supervise a lot of social workers and um, uh, they're just wonderful as long as we, I think, hold to what is true to us. I think that's absolutely right, Josie, and um, it's so I so appreciate hearing you say it in that way as well. Well, I think it's got eroded over the years, and I'm trying to fly the flag. Well, we're glad that you are flying the flag with us, Josie. And thanks for chatting with me. I, I <laughs> but- hope there's something for someone in there somewhere. Well, I, I mean, I would be surprised if we didn't hear back that, that a lot of people actually got a, a, um, some really useful information and really contemporary information about, um, you know, what people are living through and what they're bringing to you in terms of, of wanting your support around. And, um, yeah, I kind of feel like people like you, Josie, are like the canaries in the, in the coal mine in relation to our profession. And it's one of the things that we love about this podcast is that we get to hear from people like you at really what's happening right now and what's impacting on our communities right now. So I really thank you. You know, Mim, when you uh, did your introduction or to Josie's interview, you mentioned that it, it would be really useful for people who are either considering private practice or are currently in it. But do you know what I think, Mim? Like, I think it's, uh, it is it is that canary in the coal mine stuff. I think practices have shifted both in the private practice space but also in the public health and community space where some of the things that Josie talks to us about are really relevant in that sphere. You know, like a lot of us are using telehealth now. Uh, It would have been unheard of, um, you know, this time two years ago, but it's part of our practice. So some of the things that she was talking about are very relevant to our non-private practice social workers as well, don't you think? Oh, I think that's absolutely right. We've we've moved so far in our practice so quickly, actually. And, um, and like to hear actually how she's been having to work around some of those issues and having to maintain privacy and confidentiality and support people in that distanced way. And that that can be tricky sometimes. And I think it's great to hear the reality of that because I think we often hear about oh, come on, you can all do it. Let's all just jump in there and try the new technology and what's the best platform. But actually, it takes a lot more thought and planning than that. And so it was really good, I thought, to hear her step 
some of that out as well and raise some of those flags and concerns. And I liked her hybrid model too, Mim, the, the way in which she can now do a combination of sharing physical space with her clients, but also um, having the option of telehealth for those people to, who, you know, who live on the other side of Sydney. Um, and also some of those rapport building skills I thought were really interesting that our, our practitioners now have to incorporate into their practice. Something again that they wouldn't have imagined in a million years that they'd be doing. It's a bit similar to, you know, some of the the um, the techniques that our hospital social workers are having to kind of do with their eyebrows, you know. Yes, that's right. All that's they've right. got, eyes and eyebrows. <laughs> Suddenly, the eyebrows are such an important feature. That's right. Anybody who was used to plucking their eyebrows before, now they're in their heyday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so true. Um, Look, I think that was a great way to kick off our year. We do have some really exciting stuff coming up. So stay tuned, everyone. And we would love to hear your thoughts. Anything you want us to be dipping into, doing a deep dive on this year, let us know. We're planning our episodes and getting our people ready. So send us your thoughts. And uh, uh, we hope everyone is doing okay at this time, given the floods, yeah? Yeah, take care everyone and we will touch base with you next month. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Social Work Stories podcast. All of the stories we share are de-identified to respect and protect the people involved. We create this podcast because we're passionate about building the global social work community and strengthening our practice no matter the context. If you want to help us grow the podcast tribe and continue the work that we do, we would love it if you can subscribe or follow the podcast in your favorite podcast app. That way you'll be sure to get every episode as soon as it's released. While you're in your podcast app, if you can leave us a five-star rating and a review, it would mean so much to us. You can connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, where you can share our posts with your friends to help spread the word. And you can always find us at our home on the web, socialworkstories.com. The Social Work Stories podcast is made by Justin Stesch, Liz Murphy, and Dr. Mim Fox. Thanks so much for listening.